This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam. Uh, We have with us, uh, quite literally, one of my favorite thinkers on planet Earth, a person whose uh, path-breaking work has, and this is no exaggeration, civilizational implications for how we think about the nature and future of of, uh, Republican government, certainly in these United States, but I think across the world as well. He's the author of some of my favorite books ever like the Hebrew Republic, the Royalist Revolution, and most recently, the, theolo- the the Theology of Liberalism, which is excellent. He's the Robert M. Barron Professor of Government at Harvard University. He's Eric Nelson, and we're going to talk all about the American experiment. But first, uh, let's set the stage. Uh, we've been talking a great deal the last few weeks about the book of Exodus and the weeks before that about the book of Genesis. And these are widely perceived, uh, not always accurately, but not definitely Uh, but definitely not far off as like the storybook portions of the books of Moses, right? Before moving on to the book that we'll be discussing soon, the book of Leviticus. Uh, And whether this perception is right or not, the reality is that these stories have exerted an extraordinary influence on the shape and trajectory of American history. In fact, the Hebrew Bible is the wellspring that's nourished Western civilization since its inception, and it's held special relevance in America from the founding fathers rejecting the rule of Pharaoh as they characterized King George, to Abraham Lincoln designating America as an almost chosen nation, to Martin Luther King Jr. invoking the prophecies of Jeremiah, to Ronald Reagan swearing the inaugural oath on a passage from the Book of Chronicles, to Barack Obama returning again and again in his speeches to the Book of Joshua, the United States of America has always anchored itself in the wisdom and the values uh, of ancient Israel. But the truth is that sometimes this kind of analysis ends up just being surface deep. Like the biblical story of the Exodus is like vaguely American revolutionary, right? So that must be the extent of the connection. Uh, But the inextricable links between Republican theories of government on the one hand and the Bible and its commentators on the other is, is deep and profound. And especially at a moment in American history where we're so clearly struggling with the question of American purpose and identity, what is America as an idea, not just an everyday reality? It's so important to understand and appreciate this foundational piece of our history. So to unpack it, I brought on the literal world expert on the subject. He's the author of numerous incredible books in the history of the American Republican liberalism. He's the Robert M. Barron Professor of Government at Harvard University. He's Eric Nelson. Eric, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much. It's a, it's a pleasure. So. Your work, particularly an essay that that you authored even before the Hebrew Republic came out, I believe, introduced me for the very first time to the phrase Talmudical Commonwealthsman. And now usually, you know, Talmudical is used as a pejorative in the American kind of English lexicon. Or, and it's, you know, something like overanalyzing something to death. But it wasn't used as a pejorative in the sense that you documented it. So what is a Talmudical Commonwealthsman and how does it help us understand the American Republic? Uh, well, it's um, it, it's sort of a long story, but the, the, the first chunk of it is, I mean, really, the period that we're talking about is the sort of century and a half uh, that follows the Reformation. And really, we sort of have to begin there because the Reformation initiates this really quite sweeping transformation in the way that Christians in the Latin West 
related to and understood uh, what we call the Hebrew Bible and what they, of course, called the Old Testament. And this is a terrible caricature. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's actually much more complicated than this. But fair enough to say something like the following. In the sort of pre-Reformation period, sort of in Catholic Europe, the view of uh, the Old Testament was exactly that. It was old, right? I mean, it had been supplanted. It had been superseded by the gospel. And the old law had been uh, abrogated. And uh, what we had instead was the new dispensation, the, the dispensation of the gospel. Uh, and so basically the idea was to say, well, actually, so the Hebrew Bible, insofar as it codifies the moral law, it does that imperfectly, a kind of first draft of what you get in the gospel. And so we don't really need it for that because now we have the gospel. And all of the other laws that the Bible includes uh, are no longer relevant to Christians. They've just been, you know, they, they've been swept aside. So the only real reason to concern yourself with the Hebrew Bible is insofar as it was taken to authenticate the gospel, to prophesy through allegorical or typological readings events in the life of Christ. Uh, for instance, I mean, most famously, let's say, you know, the binding of Isaac is, you know, was understood to prefigure the crucifixion. You know, the flood was supposed to symbolize baptism, things like that. And then, of course, the prophets chiefly Isaiah, but, you know, the prophets and the Psalms were taken to, in some encrypted way, uh, prophesy the coming of Christ and therefore authenticate the gospel. So it still had a, an important place, but it was a very circumscribed place in the sort of Christian imagination for the most part. What happens after the Reformation is you get this, this extraordinary movement to return to the text of the Hebrew Bible, because the rallying cry of the Reformation, uh, as many of your listeners will know, is sola scriptura, only only the scripture, right? We want to get rid of the sort of patristic traditions, the traditions of the church, canon law, all the stuff that's sort of accreted on top of the Bible. And we want to go back and we want individuals themselves to go back and form a personal relationship with the biblical text. And they increasingly felt that in order to do that, you had to read it in the original languages. Uh, so they were not happy with the Vulgate Latin translation of the Bible, which was inaccurate in, in many ways. Uh, they wanted to read the New Testament in Greek, and they wanted to read the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew. And, of course, they didn't know any Hebrew. And so uh, this is this moment where there is an enormous demand in the Christian Protestant world for access to Hebrew grammars, Hebrew dictionaries, uh, lexica, and instruction from uh, Jews, many of whom were converted, but some of whom were not. And this sort of encounter with the text of the Hebrew Bible produced a new understanding of it. If you want to think of it this way, so I think of it, there were two buckets in the first view. There was the kind of moral law, which had been superseded, and everything else, which had been chucked. Now you had three buckets. You had the moral law, which had been superseded, perhaps, but was still valuable uh, as presented in the Hebrew Bible. You had the ceremonial dietary laws, circumcision and things like that, which they also believed had been abrogated, had been chucked. But then they identified this third category, uh, the political judicial laws, which occupied this interesting kind of middle space because they weren't obligatory on Christians in the sense that Christians were not citizens of the Israelite Republic, as they came to call it, the, the Res Publica Hebraeorum, the Republic of the Hebrews. But nonetheless, uh, it, they came to feel this is the only time that the perfect uh, sort of omniscient God uh, had ever designed a commonwealth. Because it was very important that they took the view that Jesus was not a lawgiver in the way that Moses was. Jesus didn't uh, give law. His function was very different. 
so this had only been done once. It had been done in the case of ancient Israel. And so this was exemplary. And it was then understood to be a task of Christians to approximate this uh, sort of pristine, perfect, divinely uh, authored constitution as closely as possible, given the circumstances that had changed in the modern world. There was endless discussion about what those were and, and all the rest. As Christians are trying to kind of excavate what this Hebrew Republic, what this ancient Israelite Hebrew Republic might have looked like and how it might have functioned, what problems did they encounter and, and how did their, their kind of recent encounter with the study of Hebrew help them with that? Well, yes. I mean, you get to the thing that's in a way the most surprising part of the story because you th- so far, uh, you know, n- nothing that I've said should be very surprising. I mean, you know, that's to say, okay, well, if you want to read the Hebrew Bible, you'd better learn Hebrew. That makes sense. Uh, but what, of course, they found, which every biblical commentator from the beginning of time has found, is that what the Hebrew Bible has to say about politics is extremely complex, sketchy. There are often passages that seem to pull in different directions or even contradict one another. And there are lots of questions that the Hebrew Bible just isn't answering at all about uh, how all of this was supposed to work, uh, how the political life of ancient Israel was supposed to function. And so what they had instead, they increasingly came to feel, uh, was the oral tradition preserved by the rabbis. Now, it's very important to say at the beginning, because this can easily go, go wrong, that these were for the, you know, overwhelmingly, these were not people who liked Jews. These were not Philo-Semites, you know, in any sense. Some of them later were, but a very small number. These were people who were unhappy that they had to make do with rabbinic sources. They wished they didn't have to use them. And usually whenever they wrote a text using rabbinic materials, they would preface it with a sort of apologia saying, you know, terribly sorry that we have to use these sort of degenerate materials, but it's kind of all we have. And so we'll apply our grain of salt, but we'll we'll use them. Uh, and the result is this extraordinary phenomenon where, you know, beginning in the final couple of decades of the 16th century and then stretching for about 100 years, two related things happen. One is that virtually the entire corpus of rabbinic literature is translated into Latin. So by the end of this period, the entire Mishnah, much of the full Talmud with the Gemara, all of the major rabbinic commentators, I mean, just vast amounts of stuff that's now available to people in the Latin West who don't know Hebrew, although it's also a period in which Hebrew study becomes basic to the uh, curriculum in Protestant universities. It's the moment you get the first professorships of Hebrew at places like Oxford and Cambridge and Leiden and, uh, and, and of course, uh, Harvard College, where I teach, where not only Hebrew, but what they call Chaldean, which is to say Aramaic, and Syriac were required. So those were the good old days. We love Syriac on Good Faith Effort. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured you would. So, uh, so that's thing number one. And related to thing number one is thing number two, which is that you get this explosion of texts and uh, you know, uh, creating a new genre of writing, these studies of the Hebrew Republic organized around and the use of rabbinic literature, to which virtually every major political theorist of the century in the Protestant world contributes, uh, whether we're talking about Grotius or we're talking about Hobbes or we're talking about Locke or, we're, of course, Spinoza at the sort of end of the story, everybody. And so uh, really that was the story that I was trying to begin to get to grips with in that essay. 
And what shift does this introduce when we encounter the realm of political philosophy? Because you can feel sort of the reverberations of this seismic event throughout the era of the Renaissance and and even stretching into the Enlightenment. You can see it in science. Paracelsus and Newton are, are engaging with Jewish mysticism. Absolutely. I mean, you can see it in the world, in the developing world of alchemy, for that matter. You could see it across the entire spectrum of early modern learning. But as we encounter the realm of political philosophy, in particular, the question of what the role or how government should be structured and specifically what role a monarch should play in government. What is the effect of this encounter with Hebraic literature, whether it's the Talmud, you know, edited in the the sixth or seventh centuries AD of the Common Era or other works of Jewish thought? So I would say there's a, let's call it a generic shift, and then there are quite specific shifts. The generic one is just the, the sort of return of the Bible to uh, the sort of genre of political philosophy. If you remember in the Renaissance, I mean, we we're talking about, let's say, Renaissance humanism. The great project of Renaissance humanism is the recovery of Roman antiquity, Greek antiquity to a lesser extent, but really to, uh, to sort of resurface all of Roman civilization and to the extent that it was indebted to Greek civilization, Greek civilization along with it, and uh, to sort of remake all of the arts and sciences uh, in the image of the classics. So in the case of political theory, what that meant is that you actually, you know, that Italian humanists and uh, other humanist writers on politics uh, almost never talk about the Bible. They're engaged in a classicizing project, right, where the sources are Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, Seneca, you know, whatever, the Roman law and many other sources. Uh, but when you read these texts, whether you're talking about, you know, people, you know, in the earlier part of the period, like Leonardo Bruni, or people later like Machiavelli, famously, they're not using biblical materials or religious arguments to uh, sort of uh, defend their positions. Uh, You know, in the period I'm talking about, particularly in the Protestant world, but uh, to a great extent everywhere, that changes. So overnight, you know, there are sort of dozens of biblical citations on every page. And, you know, all you have to do is look at a kind of random page in Grotius or Hobbes or Selden or Locke, uh, you know, as opposed to a random page in in Patrizzi or Beyond or, you know, whomever, and you see the point. So so first of all, there's a kind of a shift in how political science understands itself and, and what it takes its kind of raw materials to be. But you were asking about kind of particular ideological shifts, and there are, I think, uh, also some important ones. The one that you were mentioning, which was the subject of that article, Uh, has to do with views about monarchy. And in outline, it's actually a very simple story to tell. I mean, there are lots of uh, curly cues, as the late Jerry Cohen used to say. (laughs) But the basic outline is pretty straightforward, and that is in the Renaissance, medieval period in the Renaissance, you could say that the sort of consensus in European thought was uh, directed toward what you could call um, constitutional pluralism which, you know, is, is absolutely basic to classical political science, particularly Aristotle's political science, but many, many others, that there are several correct constitutional forms. You know, you can, uh, it's not sort of one size fits all. You can have uh, any number of uh, acceptable constitutions, Aristotle famously says, and others, uh, you know, follow him, and indeed others had anticipated him in this respect, uh, that fundamentally you have the rule of one, the few, and the many, and each of these can come in a virtuous, correct, and corrupt, degenerate form. So the virtuous rule of the one is monarchy, which is totally acceptable. The bad version of that is tyranny. You know, aristocracy is the good version of the rule of the few, literally means uh, the rule of the best men, right? Uh, and then uh, oligarchy, 
is the bad version, the corrupt version. And then the most tricky one was the third sort of popular government where Aristotle, to be maximally confusing to all of the rest of of human history, calls the correct form of the rule of the many just constitution, uh, using the word politeia, you know, the, the general term that also just means any kind of constitution. But this is the word that will eventually uh, come to be translated as republic when republic begins to have the connotation of non-monarchical constitution, which is not the case until the 15th century. Uh, you know, and then, of course, the, although pr- probably people won't like to hear it, the corrupt degenerate version is democracy for Aristotle, right? That's the, that's the tyrannical rule of the poor in, in their own interests. Uh, so, but basically, the idea was, look, all of these are acceptable, and when it comes to which is best, there might be a best absolutely. And, you know, all, most political theorists have something to say about what they think the best absolutely is. But they're also quite modest about it in the sense that they say, well, it might be the best absolutely, but that doesn't mean it's the best everywhere. Uh, there are different circumstances. I need to, before I tell you what constitution you should have, I need to know much more. I need you to tell me, where is this place? How big is this place? What are the people like? What do they do for a living? Uh, what are their mores? And, and, and so on. And so this this kind of pluralism is is basic to uh, European political theory un- un- until this period. Uh, and by the end of this period, it's really been shattered. And the uh, exposure of, of European Christians to rabbinic materials uh, played a major role in this because uh, the major issue, as you were suggesting, is the debate over monarchy. So as many people who are listening will probably know, summarize very quickly. The Bible, famously yes. straightforward about monarchy. Absolutely. <laughs> just just completely pollucidly clear. But uh, so, of course, you have these two passages, Deuteronomy 17 and 1 Samuel 8. And Deuteronomy 17, uh, on the, you know, the sort of plain meaning, seems to go something like God saying to the Israelites, when you enter the land of Israel, you will say, let us have a king. And God seems to say that's okay. Just uh, make sure it's the right kind of king. Should be a, a Jewish king. It shouldn't, he shouldn't be tyrannical. He shouldn't multiply horses and women and do... Obey the law. He should right. obey the law. But fine. You'll, ha- you'll ask for a king and that's fine. You can have one. And then, of course, when the prophesied moment comes in 1 Samuel 8, God and Samuel both get very angry. And so the question for expositors, right, who didn't have the luxury of higher criticism just to say, well, that's very easy. Uh, you know, the Samuel author and the, uh, and the Deuteronomy author, uh, you know, have different views and Deuteronomy is written after Samuel and all the stuff that, that people now say. It's, uh, you have to harmonize. Right. These, these people are like me. I'm, I'm trying to read this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they, they need to uh, make these passages uh, part of uh, a coherent picture. And so how do you do it? Well, you know, the overwhelmingly uh, common way, incidentally, for both Christian and Jewish biblical critics and uh, sort of uh, commentators was uh, to to say something like this. Well, you know, when God and Samuel got angry when the Israelites asked for a king, it wasn't because they asked for a king per se. The king was, the the sin was not asking for a monarch. It was asking for the wrong kind of monarch. And uh, this view comes in several flavors, but the most common one is the one that says that the sin was asking for a king like all the other nations. So it, uh, it picks up this the specific language of the Israelite request, let us have a king like all the other nations around us. And so the sin was asking not for a king per se, but in asking for a Gentilizing king, a, a king not like the virtuous monarch described in Deuteronomy. Uh, and then there are various other views, which uh, we, we don't need to get into, but they're all kind of in that family. But when Christian scholars uh, and biblical commentators encountered the rabbinic corpus, 
they found two very different views on offer. Each of them actually quite radical from the point of view of the the sort of the moderate position that everyone up until this time basically converged around, but radical in opposite directions. Completely so the, different ways. Exactly. So the one in the Talmud uh, that, that emerges as kind of the majority opinion in the Talmud in, in the tractate Sanhedrin, through um, some sort of mischievous wordplay, uh, basically, it takes the view that actually the passage I loosely translated in Deuteronomy as when you enter the land, you will say, let us have a king, should be read as when you enter the land, say. You must ask for a king, right? You must ask for a king. So instead of being a prophecy or a permission, it's understood to be a mitzvah, right? A commandment. And, and in fact, you know, the Talmud goes on to say that this is actually one of the three commandments that pertain to the entry into the land of Israel. Uh, you have to ask for a king, destroy the Amalekites, build the temple. And then, of course, there's a debate about what order and, and all of this. So that view, which is kind of, let's say, extremely high monarchist, right? This view that uh, at least for Israel, if not period, monarchy is not just permitted, but commanded. This uh, enters European sort of commentary and debate almost instantly. And you have major commentators, uh, just uh, like, for instance, uh, Sebastian Münster, who was one of the great uh, Hebraists and taught uh, what Hebrew he knew to John Calvin. In his Bible commentary, he just you know, drops a footnote, you know, in Deuteronomy 17 and says, well, this is, uh, you know, uh, one of the three commandments given on entering the, to, you know, entered in the land of Israel and, you know, the whole, the whole story. So you have that. So that kind of radicalizes monarchist political theory. But on the other side, what they find, this is later. So this is a little lag. The, the Talmudic account gets absorbed first. And then a bit later, uh, it takes really until the sort of middle of the 17th century, you begin to get people uh, through a complicated story, which I can go into if you want, but uh, I, I, I worry we'll start losing people. <laughs> the uh, Christian uh, scholars discover the discussion of monarchy, not in the Talmud, but in the Midrash. Right, which is this sort of like compendium of rabbinic legend and biblical commentary. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and homiletics, right. basically. Right. And so there you get the polar opposite. You get this view where the, the, the Midrash to Deuteronomy, you get the rabbi saying, well, actually, you know, when, when in 1 Samuel 8, God says, uh, you know, Samuel gets angry, God says, don't be angry at them. It's not you they've rejected, but me in asking for a king. The Midrash reads this literally to mean that in asking for a human king, the Israelites were rejecting God in the sense that they were committing idolatry. Uh, and that monarchy is a form of idolatry and therefore sin. Uh, well, then, of course, they have to explain, wait, wait, wait. So, wait, if monarchy is a sin, why did God then give them their request? Why did he institute the monarchy? And the answer given in the Midrash is, you know, the punishment for their sin was getting what they asked for, was getting the king. Uh, and this punishment will, will kind of, you know, will sort of culminate in the Babylonian uh, exile. So, uh, so you have this completely different, very radical view. And when Christian uh, writers discover this, initially they're uncomfortable with it. And in fact, you know, the first Christian writer who kind of translates this bit into Latin and makes it available sort of says, look, I don't like that. Sort of, it's my job to show you all the passages in rabbinic literature that have to do with monarchy. And this is one of them, but this is dead wrong. And, you know, we, we shouldn't believe any such thing. But by doing that, he put it in circulation. And uh, one of the people... Uh, really the first person who um, is very struck by it and then organizes an entire work of political theory around it is John Milton. Of Paradise Lost fame. 
uh, of par- and actually this is a major theme in Paradise Lost too. Yes, although the text that, in which he does this first is uh, is published, you know, about sixteen years before Paradise Lost. But probably he's working on Paradise Lost at, at, at that time. So this this was incredibly radical stuff because remember it's one thing to talk about Israelites uh, violating Israelite law, but it was a point of agreement between Jews and Christians that idolatry. The ban on idolatry was uh, part of the Noahide laws, right? Part of the laws given not just to the Jews, but to all of humanity. Uh, and so if you say monarchy is idolatrous and therefore sin, you mean it's, uh, it's illegitimate, not just for the Jews, but for everyone. And that in having a monarch, you know, bowing down to this flesh and blood figure, calling him or her majesty and so on, you're committing idolatry. So this was radioactive. And this uh, is what prompts people to begin to argue for the first time that these things called republics, meaning uh, regimes that don't have a monarch, are not just best or preferable, which after all, many, at least some humanists in, in the Renaissance uh, had argued, and even one or two in, in the medieval period, but to argue that republics are uniquely legitimate, that monarchy is an illicit constitutional form. And that view, it's extremely radical. Obviously, Milton is popularizing it in the, uh, the sort of years immediately after the execution of Charles I and the establishment of the English Commonwealth or Free State, as they called it, the sort of period, uh, you know, in this period before the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. So it's very radical then, but it has this really interesting and important afterlife. Uh, and so that sort of shatters uh, an orthodoxy in a sort of classically inflected European political thought. Now, before we get to how this shakes out in the American Revolution, just the point on Milton. So Milton sort of famously takes these very arguments that he's making against monarchy and places them in the mouth of Satan in Paradise Lost and has him launch those very same arguments against God. And the question then becomes, what's Milton about in doing such a thing? Yes. And sort of the interesting thing that Uh, sort of one explanation for Milton's literary and political and philosophical strategy there is that he's sort of demonstrating the outer limits of this sort of argument. In other words, I'm making this an argument about idolatry. In other words, if if you're worshiping a human being the same way you worship God, then you're idolatrous. But certainly the there there's a place for kind of submission to kingship within the human experience. It's just only to be directed at God, right? So Satan's confused. Satan's simply rebelling against the wrong monarch, right? You're 100% right. Or rather, I should say, I think you're 100% right. This has been uh, debated ever since the poem was published. And of course, there are people in what you could call the William Blake camp who think, you know, Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it, uh, or even knowing it. But no, I think I think your explanation is much the best one that what he's doing is he's showing this is the case at which the argument runs out. It's to show you what would have to be true of a being in order to make it acceptable Uh, for that person to rule as a king. And in fact, this is what, I mean, there is a speech uh, in, you know, the war in heaven uh, part of Paradise Lost where the angel Abdiel gives exactly this answer. He says, and he's quoting almost word for word from Milton's own discussion of this in the text called The First Defense of the English People, um, where he says, look, if there were one being who were just, you know, super eminently virtuous, infinitely superior to other beings, then, of course, it would be perfectly fitting for that person to be a king. 
and for him to govern us. But in human communities, there is no such person. But of course, God is, right? And so Abdiel says, you know, this is servitude to serve the unwise. It's only servitude to serve a human being, right? To serve God uh, is to serve reason itself. And, you know, it's sort of where the argument runs out. So I think you're exactly right. I think that's the point. So now we get to the American Revolution. And though Hebraic study certainly has a long tail in the early years of the American Republic, you have, you know, Ezra Stiles, you have Yale, you have Harvard, you have all these places that are sort of training these Hebraic ministers, as it were, and these Hebraic scholars, as it were, which is such a fascinating phenomenon in and of itself. Uh, But for the most part, you know, you don't have the framers or the founders kind of reading Talmudic texts in Independence Hall. But what you do have are people... Uh, like Thomas Paine, who are who are both receiving these arguments from the 17th century and then popularizing them in the 18th. But what happens at this point is there's sort of a standard story about how the American Revolution kind of reacts to the the English monarch in reality. And that story is that that everything about monarchy is fundamentally illegitimate and therefore they sort of throw off the shackles that King George had placed on them, and then they enact a government that essentially just mimics the the British Parliament without any remnants of, of kingship in it. And this, I suppose, is what you would call kind of the Whig view of history. Well, in both senses, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, well played. Actually, literally the Whig view, but yes. <laughs> right. right. So W-I-G yeah. and W-H-I-G. No, I but no, I did. Oh gosh, I wasn't even going there. I was talking about so you know the the Whig view of history. You know, usually when people talk about that, they mean you know the view of, of history as sort of being progressive. You know, progressive, kind of yeah. And it's also the actual Whigs, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Fig- figured I'd try to add some uh, some some old English humor. <laughs> yes, uh, all available sorts of Whigs, right? So what what's an alternative way of presenting this history, or perhaps what does that that sort of Whiggish view of history leave out? Well, I think it leaves out some important things. One of them is that, which maybe I'll say a little less about because, you know, the story that we're following at the moment bypasses this little, you know, this part of the conflict. But the maybe the first thing to say is that uh, in the Whig uh, sort of Atlantic, uh, so, you know, after the, the monarchy is restored uh, and certainly after the Glorious Revolution, this, this, ar- this kind of argument that Milton had been making and that Milton's revolutionary and Republican colleagues had been making drops out. I mean, it just, it sort of disappears. And people actually just go back to the original understanding of biblical monarchy by way of sort of neutralizing it. Basically, we don't have to worry about the Bible when we're thinking about politics, because all the Bible says is you can have whatever kind of government you want as long as it's a non-tyrannical government. And in particular, you know, as you might expect, they just read Deuteronomy 17 in, you know, they go back to the old way of reading it with a twist, which is just to say, well, when God says, you know, when you ask for a king, you can have one. What he means is you can have a Whig king. Uh, you can have a Whig monarch as long as there's separation of powers, as long as he has no independent prerogatives, as long as he's entirely subservient to the legislature. Then it's okay. And then what did the people do wrong in First Samuel 8? They asked for a non-Whig king. And now, uh, you know, we're kind of off to the races and we just have our, our kind of Atlantic Whig monarchy. But the crisis of the uh, the 1760s into the 1770s puts enormous pressure on Whig political theory, because after all, the whole point of Whig political theory had been the supremacy of parliament, right? I mean, the English had fought two revolutions in the 17th century to subjugate the crown to parliament, to make sure that uh, in practice, there was no such thing as the king outside of parliament you know, to take one very important issue. No English monarch had vetoed a bill 
you know, since 1707. And even that was a very weird case. And by the way, most people didn't know about it. So most people thought incorrectly, including all of the framers of the Constitution, because this is an issue that comes up in uh, in Madison's notes and all the other sets of notes from Philadelphia, where they're debating this issue, all of them on whatever side they're on, uh, whichever side they're on, they take it as axiomatic that no English monarch has vetoed a bill since before the glorious revolution of 1688. Now that happens to be false, but that's what they thought. You know, so the, the monarch had become a parliamentary monarch, right? That was the, uh, that was the whole point. He no longer vetoed bills. He, uh, he ruled through ministers the ministers had to maintain the support of a parliamentary majority. And we're well on our way by the time we get to the middle of the 18th century toward the development of the British Constitution as we understand it today, which is to say the queen, you know, reigns, but she doesn't rule, right? The ruling is done by ministers in her name who are uh, responsible and accountable to parliament and have to maintain a parliamentary majority, right? And, and in a way, that's, I think, the thing that we have to take more seriously in order to understand the American Revolution, because the revolution was a revolution against parliament, right? It was parliament, it was the ministry uh, that in the wake of the Seven Years' War, had uh, what we call the French and Indian War, but everyone else, you know, it's First World War. You know, you get this huge British victory, but it was very expensive. And the British, uh, you know, and Parliament decides that America should pay its share uh, of the cost. And first they levy some duties, but then ultimately they decide on direct taxation. Uh, and this is what sets off the crisis, right? Uh, so the crisis is first and foremost a, par- a, a crisis about parliamentary jurisdiction. Uh, And one of the extraordinary things that happens is that actually these people who grew up Whigs find themselves rather interestingly sort of discovering that the view they're gravitating toward, which is the view that Parliament has no jurisdiction whatsoever over America, but America is connected rather solely through the crown, right, through the person of the king, uh, who just happens to be king of America in the same way that he's king of Britain uh, and prince elector of Hanover and so on. It's this like weirdly Merovingian argument. Well, well, it was exactly that was the view of the Stuart monarchs. Uh, That was the view that Parliament had rejected. And, uh, you know, the same Parliament for which Milton was writing as a propagandist was the first one that succeeded in passing laws to govern America, because as all the uh, the colonists ended up saying in the 1760s and 70s, they usurped the royal prerogative, right? They'd, They'd murdered their king and then stolen his power. So actually, by the time you get to the early 1770s, American political discourse, I mean, colonial opposition, American political discourse is extremely royalist, right? I mean, they're arguing that the independent monarchy should be revived and that George III should turn himself into a, a sort of new king emperor governing his overseas dominions in conjunction with their domestic legislatures, but where parliament has no jurisdiction outside England. And this horrified people in Britain because it, you know, it seemed to be turning back the clock on the constitution by over 100 years in a, in a monarchist, royalist direction. So that's the first thing we miss. But of course, if you miss that, you then miss how enormously shocking what happens next is because, you know, they are really begging George III to revive all these powers, to start vetoing bills again, to start ruling without his ministers in American affairs. And he has no interest in doing this because he's a Whig. He also, you know, he's seen this movie before and, you know, you know, he's, yeah, sure, I'm going to walk out and announce I'm now King Emperor. You know, they'd have me kneeling on a block outside the banqueting house at Whitehall. You could walk out, just leave your head inside, right? <laughs> uh, exactly. So, you know, as he says over and over again in his correspondence, you know, I'm fighting the battle of the legislature here, right? This is a war 
for Parliament to assert the supremacy of Parliament within the English constitutional scheme. But when he rejects the American overtures, when he finally kind of momentously says no and gives this speech in October of 1775, declaring the colonists in rebellion, uh, saying, you know, very famously, they meant only to amuse with their protestations of loyalty to me, because he knows, of course, that this is the content of what they've been saying. Uh, And now, you know, he's uh, supporting a ministerial policy of making war on the colonies. It takes a few months for that speech to reach America, for the text to reach America. It happens to land in January of 1776, which also happens to be the month in which Paine publishes Common Sense. And Paine had missed a lot of this. You know, he had been in England. He was an emigre. He was a kind of Franklin protege who's brought over. And he writes Common Sense at this moment when people are feel this enormous sense of betrayal that the monarch they'd, in, in whom they placed all their hopes, right, uh, had turned on them. And he's sort of able, through you know, extremely good timing, to take advantage of this swing in public opinion. And it's into that context that he sort of drops the grenade that is common sense. It's like the first viral tweet thread. Viral is exactly the right way to th- I mean, you know, it is the bestseller of the American 18th century. Uh, it's immediately printed in over 100,000 copies, but that actually massively understates its circulation because it was reprinted and excerpted in dozens of newspapers, broadsheets, you know, I mean, and we know that everyone is reading it and everyone from Washington all the way down is writing in their correspondence about the effect this is having on public opinion. And the section that was most uh, sort of incendiary and most excerpted and most influential happened to be the section in which for the first time since uh, the middle of the 17th century, an English author revives this argument about monarchy and idolatry, where he's just he's just cribbing Milton. I mean, Milton is you know is open on his desk as he's as he's writing this, as he sort of later admits to John Adams, uh, and the effect is staggering. This attack on the on the status of kingship is basically what makes the creation of an American monarchy uh, impossible uh, after after this moment. And so you have these two kind of instincts in the early. American period, you have this, you know, what you've called in in your work, Republican exclusivism, right? The idea that monarchy is, is sort of de jure illegitimate. And in fact, not just illegitimate, it's idolatrous, it's sinful, and far from constitutional pluralism. In fact, republics are the only form of legitimate government. So you have this sort of Republican exclusivism. And then you also have this kind of incipient royalism, this sense that the king's the king's the one who will save us that pops up again and again in this kind of early American period. And how do those two things fit alchemically almost? Well, uh, alchemy is a good, you know, is, is, is maybe the right way to think about what happens, because in essence, you can think about it this way. The earlier Republican tradition, I mean, the, you know, the Republican tradition from, you know, the, the humanist tradition is worried about monarchy to the extent they don't like monarchy. It's because they don't like kingly power, right? They don't like the idea that there's a single person who has prerogative powers and can govern according to his will, which is how they, uh, of course, that's not how royalists would describe what monarchy is, but that's how Republicans described uh, what monarchy was like. Uh, and that's what made, you know, Whiggery compatible with this kind of classicizing Republican political theory. Because the idea was, look, if you have a king who doesn't do any of that, uh, if, if your king doesn't make law, it has no role in making law and uh, is simply a pure executive, right, executing through his appointed officers the laws passed by the legislature, that's fine. 
I mean, you're, you're in good shape. Knock yourself out. This does something, this puts the emphasis on something different, right? The emphasis is not on the powers of kings, right? But on the status of kingship, on the, the office itself, the idea of, of having someone who is regarded as a king, who's reverenced as a king, who sits on a throne, uh, who wears robes, to, uh, to whom one bows, uh, whom one calls majesty, and so on. That that's the thing that's being stigmatized. And of course, what that makes possible is this, you know, uh, you can sort of see where this is going. Well, now, if the emphasis is just on the kingly status, if you get rid of that, you seem to have done what you need to do. You might have a magistrate, you might have a magistrate in a republic who's not a king, who's not called a king, and who is not reverenced in this way, but who nonetheless has a great deal more power uh, than, let's say, George III had in the English constitution, and you would not run afoul uh, of Republican principles on this understanding. Uh, so what ends up happening uh, is this rather r- remarkable fusion, where you have a kind of anti-monarchist political culture, right, where, where um, you, you can't have, although there, there is a kind of flirtation with royal pageantry, in connection with the presidency in the early years uh, of Washington's presidency, but that doesn't take for the most part. And so you have this uh, this figure who is not a monarch and who is therefore uh, not liable to the same kind of criticism on grounds of idolatrous uh, sort of disrespect of uh, of God's unique monarchy uh, as uh, you know you know his crowned European peers, but is given, as most people understood at the time, a good deal more power than uh, the English monarch, in fact, possessed by the end of the 18th century within the English constitution. And so, you know, you get this non-monarchical figure, or you could call him non-monarchical, but very powerful, or you could call him non-royal, but quite monarchical, you know, different ways of putting it. You know, it's it's what leads John Adams uh, very, you know, very strikingly to say, you know, in 1789, uh, that you you know you ask me what form of government our constitution institutes, uh, and I respond uh, very clearly: it institutes a limited monarchy. You know, very much like the 17th century one in England. So the Republican exclusivists, or maybe the Hebraists, or maybe both, um, and to the extent that they're sort of on a continuum, they understood that. And this is sort of the the upshot of your work. They kind of understood that symbols matter and the the things and people that we revere or for that matter revile matter. Now, to kind of shift this conversation as we as we draw down to contemporary issues. So I think today's kind of technocrats who are sort of the descendants of the 17th and 18th century Whigs kind of seem perpetually frustrated by this. And I honestly I do have some sympathy for them. I even feel an affinity for the Whigs at times. But haven't we seen the proof in the Hebraist position, or or at least a strong indicator of the Hebraist position kind of throughout COVID, and even now kind of in the uh, the war in Ukraine, we could argue about, for example, we could argue about mask science all we want from here until tomorrow, but it mattered. I think people understood intuitively that it mattered for good or ill what you did in front of a camera more than what you kind of did in the privacy of your own home. In Ukraine, the question of how to combat Russian artillery and to deal with Russian potential air superiority is important, but it's just as if it's just as if not more important that Zelensky has become kind of an international symbol of bravery and pride in one's people and country. Right. So how do we think about the importance of of symbols and reverence in the contemporary political atmosphere? And, and how does your work kind of help you think about that? God, it's such a good question. And, I, I, you know, I'm I, like everyone else. I think I struggle with 
the answer. Uh, I mean, in a way, of course, uh, there's an irony in that, uh, you know, the the Whigs, you know, in a sense, I mean, you know, they, they continue to triumph uh, in that the extraordinary role that the British crown has come to play in just this kind of what you call the kind of the domain of the symbolic, not just in Britain, but around the world, despite having no political power, basically. I mean, that's to say, uh, you know, today as then, you know, bills need the royal assent in order to become law. But there was a wonderful play called King Charles III a a few years ago, where the the premise was, what would happen if, uh, you know, after the queen dies and, and Charles takes over, what if he tried to veto a bill? That's the premise of the play. <laughs> I don't mean to give anything away, but by act two, there are tanks in the street. You know, you have a kind of purely symbolic monarchy that precisely through it, the pomp, the pageantry, the reverence, and the sense of embodying the state in this particular way uh, has managed to, uh, you know, become an extraordinary force uh, in ways that I think, uh, you know, are, are unexpected particularly unexpected outside the particular country uh, in which she happens to be queen. So I think, you know, that that's an interesting dynamic. But the modern world would have surprised these people for lots of reasons. Uh, and of course, the Whig idea, as you say, that uh, basically we don't do religious politics. I mean, politics is politics. And, uh, you know, when, when common sense comes out, all of his critics, including, by the way, some people who become patriots, I mean, this is not just a kind of loyalist phenomenon. Many patriots were quite uncomfortable with common sense, this aspect of common sense, including famously John Adams, who, you know, thinks it's ridiculous and tells Paine that it's ridiculous. The Whig idea is, what are you doing? You know, we we, we got rid of all this stuff a hundred years ago. Uh, you know, we, we don't, good Whigs don't do scripture politics, as they call it, <laughs> right? We, uh, scripture is for church. You, you do politics through prudence, through the study of history, through the study of uh, natural law, through the you know the study of the law of nations, and you know the, and the entire canon that we've inherited. We don't ask the Bible how to arrange our politics. That, that idea seemed sort of atavistic, incredibly reactionary, and kind of retro in the 18th century. Uh, and of course, all around us, we see uh, the extremely robust character of ascendant. Uh, and often quite intolerant forms of religiosity intervening in politics, including, of course, in Ukraine. I mean, of course, it, it's not been one of the major aspects of the story that tends to be covered here. But the, the kind of ecclesiological conflict between the Eastern Orthodox Church in Russia and the Orthodox Church in Ukraine is a major part of the background of this, you know, this horror that we're witnessing. And so, you know, the sort of uh, political theology is, uh, you know, is alive and well and, you know, doing extraordinary damage in many places in ways that I think would have shocked them. You know, those are just two thoughts. But of course, there, there are many others that, that one could give. I love it. I, I As my last question, I actually want to focus on you for a second. So I, if I think of you as a scholar in general, my sense is that your superpower is that you are willing to take an epic in history, the sources and sort of historical resources for which are thought to be widely known and understood and agreed upon. And you sort of discovered this alternative, not alternative, it's it's not alternative, it was, it was crucial to the time, but you sort of discovered this new window into the world of early modern political philosophy through this kind of trove of texts that people in your field hadn't typically uh, spent a great deal of time in, namely the Talmud, the Midrash, and so on and so forth. So if you're making the case 
to listeners who may not be of a, you know, who may not, you know, be tenure track at a university or just someone who's interested in the roots of our political experiment and who's interested in biblical interpretation. What is it like and what does it take to engage a tradition as complex and in some ways Byzantine as, you know, rabbinic literature? What does it take to do that kind of work? Well, first of all, I should say that I I tend to end up writing books by accident. Uh, And, you know, the Hebrew Republic book was absolutely uh, uh, sort of something that I stumbled into. And I was very anxious myself about whether I had the, you know, linguistic and rabbinic chops to do this. And I concluded I didn't, frankly. (laughs) I was going to say, spoiler alert, you pulled it off. (laughs) But I no, but I I relied on the help of many friends who knew these uh, materials much better than I did. And I worked as hard as I could to try to get to sort of increase my comfort level with them. But I was very conscious that, you know, not having myself had a, uh, you know, a yeshiva education or anything like that, that I would never have the kind of native familiarity uh, with, let's say, the Talmud that someone who's been, you know, studying a page uh, a day since, uh, you know, middle school would have. So, you know, I had no illusions uh, about that. And I was very conscious of my own shortcomings and, you know, the the sort of lacuna in my understanding of the material. Uh, But I was sort of comforted to discover the people I was studying making mistakes too. I mean, it was, you know, (laughs) and in in a way, some of the mistakes were were just delightful. I mean, the best part, in a way, the, the most fun I had in the book uh, when I was working on that book a, a long time ago, was just running into these mistakes they would make, which are entirely understandable mistakes, but which had enormous consequences, actually. And so they give you a kind of appreciation of the serendipity. I'll just give you one example, which is that, so the, we were talking about the Midrash to Deuteronomy. And so we're talking about this text. It's called the, you know, the, Mid, the Midrash to Deuteronomy, and it's part of a, a broader text that in Hebrew is called uh, the Midrash Rabbah, meaning the great Midrash right? And I realized that people were quoting it in Latin. I mean, in Latin translation, they were quoting it word for word, but they weren't calling it the Midrash. Uh, you know, they were calling it Bar Nachman. And they were saying, as Bar Nachman says, and then, and then this would come out. And it took me a while to figure out what was going on. But uh, what was going on is that quite understandably, I mean, it's not, you know, particularly you have to understand, you know, these are people, you know, who had very limited access to Jews uh, to, with whom to discuss these matters in most cases, they saw a text called the Midrash Rabbah. And instead of think, uh, understanding that it means Rabbah there means the great, you know, the great Midrash, they thought it meant the Midrash by somebody named Rabbah. You know, they found uh, a rabbinic figure, one of the one of the sages in the Talmud. Rabbah Bar Nachmani. <laughs> Rabbah, Rabbah Bar Nachmani. And they, they announced that this is a text called Bar Nachman. You know, so it's, it's that kind of stuff. You know, since I was making mistakes myself, I thought uh, there was a certain solidarity in realizing that people have been making mistakes about these things for a very long time. So in answer to your, your broader question, I actually think it's much easier now than it has ever been before for people to engage with these materials just because they really have been translated in ways that are very accessible and very well done into English. You don't have to have rabbinic Hebrew, you know, at a high level to read what the Talmud has to say about, for instance, monarchy. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's available in, in many different formats in English. And that just wouldn't have been the case until very recently. We can just sort of go online and read anything you want to read in English. Now, of course, you know, uh, the deeper dive into it requires, un- you know, being able, uh, as with all texts, uh, you know, you, you get something entirely different when you're able to read them in the original language. But actually, I think as times go, this is about the best time I can imagine to find oneself interested in these kinds of things. 
Wow. Amen. Eric, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. Oh, no. Thank you for having me. It was great fun. The premise of the Renaissance view of the Hebrew Republic is that far from being dirty or anti-spiritual, the Bible's view is that engaging in politics, if done properly, is actually holy work. Morality isn't something we keep private. Morality is meant to be shared in the hopes of creating a better, more virtuous world. I mean, the difference, after all, between a crowd and a community is structure. And at the societal level, structure means political thought and institutions. So for the Hebrew Bible, one very important way that we share our values with others is through political life. And that's why the work of scholars like Eric Nelson is so critical. Just like a biblical society needs a theory of politics, American politics needs an appreciation of the Bible and the role that it and its commentators played in endowing us with the rights and duties, the mission and purpose that animate or at least should animate the American experiment to this day. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome. Go head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. 